Well, good morning, church. My name is J.D. Partain. I am the pastor at Echo Church. Um, first of all, I just, I, I just want to say, uh, I, I want to show our appreciation for just a couple people real quick. First of all, I just want to say thanks to Dylan Dibdahl for leading uh, the Echo softball team. That is now <laughs> two wins um, ahead, I think. Uh, and uh, it's really fun to go to that. When's our next game, by the way? It's Friday at what time? Anybody know? Oh, that's right. He's teaching. Yeah, that's true. All right, make sure you pat him on the back and say good job. Anyway, if you want to come out and support the team, you should. We need all the fans that we can get. It's, it's really, really fun to be out there on Friday nights. Uh, the second person I want to say thanks to is, is Jen Bartlett. She has been sort of the welcome and the closer at the, uh, in terms of the service. She welcomes the church, and at the end, she'll do the announcements. I think she does such a great job. It's almost like I just want to celebrate that. If there was a way to do that on an annual basis where we could celebrate who she is regularly with like maybe some cake and uh, some candles or something. Anyway, just a thought. You guys just think about that. Um, we, we are Echo Church. Do you have something to say? Oh, perfect. Thank you. That's Dylan's mom. Give it up for Dylan's mom. Yeah. Ah, 7.30 on Phil. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so this is Echo Church, and <laughs> I had an interesting thing happen. I was uh, eating some dinner, and I had my laptop open, and I was at a particular restaurant, and uh, just doing some studying and whatnot, and uh, some people in the table next to me started talking about our church. And so I was kind of, you know... <laughs> And I didn't know what to do, so I texted my wife. I'm like, ah, should I say something, you know, that kind of thing? Because the things I kept saying, they were like, well, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's kind of a church of Christ. That's how somebody put it, and they're like, you know, yeah, and that pastor, he's just really rambunctious and kind of an idiot. No, he didn't <laughs> say that. But I, I wasn't sure what to say, and uh, eventually I got the courage that as they were about to leave, I stood up and said, hey, that was my church you're talking about. <laughs> That's not what I said. That's not what I said. I just introduced who I was and, and whatnot. We had a great conversation, but I do want to say this. We do come out of the Church of Christ, and today we had an a cappella worship service, which I still love. I have to tell you right now, I love a cappella, so I have nothing against a cappella. We came out of an a cappella heritage, but we also have a band that, that is practicing and will play on, I think, like a once-a-month basis or so for a little while. So we try to play with both both sides, but Echo Church is essentially a church that is completely non-denominational. In fact, I'm not even sure that fully describes who we are. We are a church that's on the ground, and I tell people all the time, if you're going to talk about the love of Jesus Christ, if you're going to talk about peace, if you're going to talk about gentleness, and you're going to do all these things and preach about this stuff, then you have to live it out, specifically Monday through Saturday, right? You don't just get to come to church and check the boxes. And so Echo is simply a resonation of God's love. He loved us, so we love the world, all right? So that's the essence of who we are as a church, and so we're very mission-minded. We have been talking about this concept of prayer. It's a very short series, and when I say short, that's relative to the previous series, which was about 15 weeks. But uh, we've been talking about this idea of prayer, and last week I, I, I introduced the whole concept by saying, hey, listen, there are some characteristics of what it means to be human that are specific to you, to, to humanity. It makes us unique. It, 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 it puts us in a completely different category than all other organisms on the planet. For example, the appreciation that we have for beauty. Okay? No other animal has that. I always give the example of, you know, if a fox is walking through the forest, do they pause and go, oh, look at that sunset. Wow. You know, no, that's us. We, we set up these buildings that have art inside of them, and, and we love to listen to music and stuff like that. We have an appreciation for beauty, and I think that screams out as a characteristic of our maker. Um, we are also wired for worship. We want to worship. Whether you know it or not, you're wired to worship. All people are. Throughout, hu throughout human history, we're wired to worship. Whether that means we are going to worship our Creator, but He also gave us the free will to worship whatever we wanted. And so many times we worship things, we worship other people, most of all we worship ourselves. We're in a broken world, and that's what we have decided that we would worship instead, but we are still inclined to worship. But we are also designed to pray. Anthropolo anthropolo anthropologists, 
got it. Uh, throughout, throughout the world agree that all cultures have some sense or inclination to pray to something, all right? Why? Why do we have that? Like, where does that come from, right? It doesn't matter what culture you are in, and for the most part, most religions, there will be some form of prayer to some higher being, to some inner being, to some thing in nature, but we still are designed to pray. And so we looked at the fact that even the disciples of Jesus Christ, they were intrigued by this concept of prayer. They, they wanted to know more about it. And so they say to Jesus in Luke chapter 11, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. What's fascinating about that is they didn't ask for anything else. They didn't say, teach us to preach a sermon, right? They didn't say, teach us how to do, you know, these particular things. No, they said, teach us how to pray. And in Luke 11, this is, as he's moving towards Jerusalem, this is probably a couple years after the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he teaches them how to pray. That's where we get the Lord's Prayer from. He says, pray in this way, all right? But what happens in Luke 11 is Jesus actually goes off to a mountain like he always does, and he's praying somewhere, and when he comes back, something, there was just something going on. And we talked about that. What is it that's inside this particular disciple in Luke 11 that says, Lord, I want to do that. Like, what you were just doing, really want to know it. I want to understand what's going on. Why? I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. Why would they want that? And so, we looked at that, and, and essentially, I believe that they can sense that there is something about Jesus' prayers that's different than the prayers that they were typically hearing from the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawmakers, the priests. And I would suggest it was an infusion of the Holy Spirit. I think they saw a type of dialogue within the triune God. They wouldn't understand it that way, of course. That was special, and it set it apart, and they wanted it. They longed for it. And I think that's exactly how Jesus answers in that particular chapter. And you can look that up or you can listen to the uh, podcast if you want. So we talked about the fact that as you pray, are you aware of the fact that you're praying through the Holy Spirit? Are you summoning, perhaps, to asking God to fill you up with the Holy Spirit? Do you understand that there's something that sets apart your prayers from most others because of the Holy Spirit? Well, a fourth thing that makes us uniquely human is that we are time-oriented. We are time-oriented. In other words, we value reflecting in the past. We talk about what we're doing right now, but we also dream. We, we look at the future. And today what I want to suggest is perhaps that is another characteristic that should permeate all of our prayers. When you kneel to God, what do you do as a time-oriented people? You know, as I was growing up, my, uh, my granddaddy, this would be my, my mother's father, um, we didn't, I mean, we called him granddaddy on occasion, but really, he preferred to be called old rubber boot. Now, I don't know where that came from, but we were always calling him about, you know, talking about our old rubber boot. And uh, we had taken a trip down to Texas. I was about seven years old at the time, and my, my mom said to myself and, and my brothers, hey, old rubber boot's going to take you fishing today. And we were like, oh, great. You know, our experience with fishing was pretty limited at the time. And so he had, an, he had a boat, and we all got to uh, drive with him out to the, the put-in, and he put the boat inside, you know, I can't remember what it was. I remember a lake. But anyway, we were in a lake inside of this boat. And my mother, she had us all set up perfectly. She packed our lunches and everything, but she also gave us a warning. She said, when you get out there, the Texas sun is going to fry you, so you better put on some lotion. And so she gave us all the stuff that we needed, and my granddaddy, old rubber boot, he set us up, and he, he got the fishing poles, and he showed us how to tie the knots and put the lures on it and everything else. And then he taught me how to cast. You know, you hold it like this, and as you're flinging it forward, you're letting your thumb off of the release of the, of the reel, and, and, and that line's just going to shoot out there, right? And it's really fun. So um, he, he was like, you know, go ahead and give it a shot. Well, of course, I'd followed my mother's instructions. I had all sorts of lotion, and I'd handed it to the boys. We're like lathering up and everything. I had it all over my hands. So by the time I took that pole, I was like, Poof. 
<laughs> I, I, I threw the whole thing in. Like it just shot right out of my hands. And old rubber boot, he wasn't too happy about it. He like, he grabbed a cane pole and when we're trying to get the, the rod out of the line, never, we never got it. And he had me just sit in the boat. Didn't give me another fishing pole. He just, I just had to sit there, you know, like the, that kind of thing. And I always remember that. And it's a memory that's lodged in my head. And I even kind of feel a little bit of the pain of that particular memory. And now, as I think about fishing with my own children, I can't wait. And so I buy them a fishing pole, and I'm going to teach them. And I've already been working with them a little bit about that kind of stuff. And I'm not giving them any lotion. They can just burn, you know. It's like, (laughs) because I learned my lessons. But it's interesting to me how we take even the simplest little stories like that, these little stories that are lodged inside of your brain, and it creates something very unique to you as a human being. Let's go even deeper, to you as a child of God. So how does this work? Well, I'm going to call it spiritual memory. I didn't coin the phrase, but there's not exactly a whole lot that's written on the idea of spiritual memory. But how often do you hear the phrase, hey, do you remember um, what I told you? <laughs> I, I hate that phrase. People will come up to me, they'll be like, hey, do you remember what I told you about blah, blah, blah? And I'll be like, nope. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, do I wing it? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, do, I, do you lie? I'm sure we've all been put in this particular situation, right? It's extremely awkward. We're trying to think, okay, what was it that was so important that they told me? And eventually, you may just have to surrender and say, well, I, I really don't, you know, that type of thing. What is it that's so important about us remembering things. And if somebody asks that, what, what risk do we run by saying, no, I don't remember a thing you said? It's painful, right? <laughs> it hurts. It's because somewhere in there, in this talk about memory, there is value. And I want us to talk about that. There are two psychologists, John Hattie and Gregory Yates. They wrote a book called Visible Learning and the Science of How We Learn. They say this. They say, long-term memory determines who you are, what you can do, and how you see your world. Memory determines who you are, what you can do, and how you see your world. I love this question. I was asked this question a long time ago. It's sort of one of those thinking questions, but here's the question. It's, which would you rather delete? The actual experience or the memories that come from it? Which one's more valuable? Which one would you rather delete? For some people, they're like, no, I, I like the experience, you know? I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie. I just want to do it, you know, that kind of thing. Great, but you don't get to remember anything of it. But maybe you don't get to go through the experience and you, remember, and you have the memories. Which one is more, more valuable? There, I don't have the answer for you. It's one of those thinking questions. But it's one of those questions that I would probably lean towards the memories. There's something about memory that sort of knits us together. As a youth minister, back in the Churches of Christ, I would take kids on all these different trips. We would go from everywhere from Honduras to, you know, Navajo Reservation and all these different things. And I'm glad that I learned very quickly, pictures are incredibly important. So if you go on a trip, you better make sure that you have somebody who's going to be taking pictures, right? And I don't care if that's on their phone. I don't care if that's a really nice camera, but somebody needs to be logging what's going on. You got to make sure that kids get together, that they all sit around. You know, we had this one playground that we went to, and it had all the, these giant heads. It was a playground, but it had all these giant heads like Easter Island, you know what I'm talking about? These giant, you know, things. And so we took a picture, and later I found out one kid was sticking his finger up the nose of one of the, you know, statues. You know, but, but you show that to the kids, and what happens? They don't just remember. What do they do? They relive. They relive. I mean, it continues to permeate. So I had all these pictures and whatnot. I still have kids today who keep reminding me on Facebook, that, oh, remember this, and remember when, and all this other kind of stuff. Because there's something about the memories of that that knits us together. Maybe it's true. Maybe long-term memory determines who you are. Maybe it is close to an identity issue. The remembrance of God's presence, the story of God, the story of our personal lives, and the story of us. So spiritual memory, I'm sorry, spiritual memory defined, if I was going to define it, would be it's the remembrance of God's presence. 
the remembrance of God's presence. That would be the story of God, the story of our personal lives, and the story of us together. Because if what Hattie and Yates say is true, and if we really are made in the image of God, then maybe when we choose not to remember, or maybe when we're irresponsible with the idea of memory, it will cease to offer glory to God. What do you think of that? I mean, could it be that memory is that important? In a way, without memory, our worship will suffer. Our relationship with God can never achieve its actual potential. So today, real quick, I'm just going to kind of harp on two aspects of spiritual memory. I want us to think about the spiritual memory in relationship to God's story, and then I want us to think about spiritual memory in relationship to our own personal story. Regarding God's story, there is an essential truth. When we're talking about memory, right, when we're talking about reflecting on God's story, there's an essential truth, and some of you are not going to like it. You need to read God's Word, you got to open your Bibles. You have to read God's Word. You need to immerse yourself into God's Word. Now, I know for some of you, you know, you opened it up, and you were maybe really unlucky, and you opened it right up to Leviticus. And you're like, I can't do it. Nobody can do it. I, I'm going to put your mind at ease. Where you should start is either Genesis and then go through Exodus. Lots of fun stuff through there. And then I'd skip to Joshua. Man, I, I would go from Joshua all the way to the end of 2 Kings. That is a lot of fun scripture. You're going to read some stuff where you're going to read it and be like, I thought this was the Bible. I can't believe they're telling me these things. You know? Then you get to Psalms. What's that all about? And Proverbs and the wisdom that you'll find in Proverbs. What's funny about that is the wisdom that was applied then applies today. But you have to be inside of God's word if we're going to be talking about God's story and if we're going to be reliving the memory of God's story. But this is why I love to tell stories of the Bible. You know, this particular kind of preacher, it's funny when people compare preachers. They're always like, well, you're not that kind of preacher. I hear that all the time. <laughs> well, you're not really that kind of preacher. And I'm not sure what that means, but I think what they mean is, is that I don't necessarily stand up and give you a bunch of facts and figures. There's some, right? But I'm a storyteller. I always was. I'm just wired that way. My kids are always asking me for stories. Dad, tell us another story about when you were a kid, right? And I'll tell them all sorts of different stories. But that's why I think it's important that when I stand up here and I convey a particular story, it's not just a piece of fiction. It's something that actually played out in Scripture. So I will take you to that Scripture, but then I'm going to make it read in such a way that your 21st century ears can immerse yourselves into that story. Because what I'm hoping that you're going to walk away with are memories some type of connection, some type of reflection. You know my favorite stories. There's one that talks about water and the wine, right? John chapter 2, the first miracle in the city of Cana. There's a wedding. It's a big party that's going on until they run out of wine, which is a big boo-boo, right? And so they don't know what to do. And of course, Jesus' mother, she's got a great idea. Oh, I know someone who could take care of the problem, right? And she goes to her son, and she's like, we need more wine. And I love what he says to her. He says, Woman, <laughs> I wish I would have talked to my mom that way. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. The Messiah has spoken. Okay, well, I'm going to be outside. I'm going to tell everybody that you're making some wine. <laughs> like, that's literally what it is. Because she says to the people, she's like, whatever he does, you do it. All right. And then she leaves. Boom. And he's just like. You know, it starts, starts to make some of the best tasting wine ever. What about David and Goliath for Samuel 17? Great chapter. You want to start your Bible reading habit? Start there. First Samuel 17. Awesome. Little boy David. He's delivering sandwiches to his brothers. They're in the middle of a fight with the Philistines. It's the army that they always are in fights with, it seems. And so they're fighting the Philistines at this time. And there's one warrior that's above them all, literally above them all. His name is Goliath. And he's huge. And he's taunting the armies, the Hebrew nation. He's taunting them and making fun of them, and nobody wants to go out there and have battle with them. He's, he's even suggesting, you know what, let's just, instead of our armies fighting each other, I'll just take one other person and let's just settle this, right? And he keeps making fun of them, and David comes. He's delivering the sandwiches to his, to his brothers, and the next thing you know, he finds out that there's this guy who's taunting 
the armies of the living God? So he starts asking questions. And he's like, so um, has anyone gone out there yet? What happens if somebody does? What will be done for this person? And one of his brothers hears him ask that question. He's like, what are you doing? You gave us the sandwiches, now get out of here. You know, he's like, I'm just asking questions. But seriously, what will be done? And they tell him, well, this will be done and this will be done. But in the end, David is just furious that someone is making fun of God Almighty. And so he talks actually to the king. The king is like, you want to go out there? It's your funeral. Here, make sure you take some, ar- some armor. They armor him up. You know, they put on all this stuff. He has a big sword. He's just a little kid. And it weighs him down, and he doesn't know what to do. So he's like, ah, forget this. And he drops all of the armor. It says that it did not fit him well, right? So he goes over to a creek, and he gets five stones. And he's got his sling. And he runs up and jumps up onto the battlefield. And the whole army's like, what is this? Including Goliath, who's like, seriously? Are you a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he begins to make fun of David. And then David says this. You, Goliath, come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin. That guy who's holding your shield, they had a shield bearer. It was a different person. Like, he was that big, and he would just hold the shield up like that, you know? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And let me tell you what I'm going to do with you. I will strike you down. I'll remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the rest of your friends, the Philistines, this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That all of this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hands. Oh, what a great speech. And then he just, you know, and the stone hits Goliath in the forehead, kills him immediately, he falls to the ground. David takes his own sword, slices his head off, and does exactly what this is. All right, is that lodged in your heart? Is that lodged inside of your spirituality? Do you believe it? Like, Is that true? Can it create some type of a spiritual memory that rests deep inside of who you are? Because do you think you're ever going to see your own Goliath? Oh yeah, you probably will. And where will your faith come from? Do you have memory in God's story? Think about it. When we have these different memories, there's a certain power that exists inside of them. How many of you have been to a reunion before? I really am curious, because I haven't been to one yet. Really? Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I have a picture of what they're like in my mind, right? But when you have these reunions, you you, you get together, and it's a bunch of old friends. Now, I can't wait for my next reunion with Florida College. That's the college I got kicked out of. But I did have some great friends, all right? And we had this one suite where we were all together. We had four rooms with a common area. It was called Suite 5, and Suite 5 was known for doing some crazy stuff. So it wasn't all just my fault. But anyway, we, we would get together, and I could picture us getting together, and what are we going to do? We're going to swap stories. Remember that one prank? Remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? And there's going to be all sorts of exaggeration and all sorts of, you know, laughter and all the rest of it. It'll be very, very joyous, Right? But is it possible that at the same time, there might be certain pains that come to the surface? Is it possible that your relationships were not 100% awesome, that you had a few hiccups? Maybe there was some relationship that never got repaired. Is it possible that through your conversation, dialogue such as this, listen, I really am sorry. I was an idiot, and I didn't know what I was doing. Is it possible that the conversation could take you into that place? And then is it possible that the conversation can even take you to a place of, you know what, let's stay in touch. In fact, what are you doing next week? Let's get some coffee. Almost a rekindling of an old relationship, a wounded relationship or a broken relationship. Is all of that possible? And I believe we see it all the time. I think the power of memory is that it takes you from a place in the past and moves you slowly into a place of the present and perhaps even into a place in the future. I feel as though we get to see this over and over. 
when we are looking at the different um, um, stories that we find in the Bible. I think what happens is, is it plays into our own lives in a very personal way. But I also feel as though when we look at what it means to be human and what it means to allow God's story to intersect with our story, we'll see the power of that. Let me give you some examples. Trevor Hudson is an author, and this is, these are the words that he says. He says, see what begins to happen when we take time to remember. All of us carry memories within our hearts, and when they are recalled, we enter into a mysterious journey. The past breathes again in such a way that the present is injected with new life. Previously hidden significance bursts into conscious awareness, and locked-up feelings find their freedom, and in their appropriate expression, they bring renewed vitality and aliveness. What's his point? Is it possible that memory is far deeper and more important than simply memorizing facts? Now, I am someone who advocates memorizing Scripture. I think you should memorize Scripture. I just told you to read your Bibles. But is it possible that sometimes memorizing Scripture can then be in the same category as just having a bunch of facts? And is that what our memory is really ultimately supposed to be used for? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus was very clear. He would uh, have all sorts of different people who would memorize facts. He was really hard on Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's he's speaking with a Pharisee who was so scared to come to him, he came to him at night. And so Jesus has given him some very hard, difficult truths. And at one point, he says to Nicodemus, he says to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In other words, you're somebody who should know the law. You should know exactly what is said word by word, but you should also understand the meaning behind it. He would say the same thing to different Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He would really come down on the scribes and the Pharisees. Same with Luke chapter 11. So is it really, is memory just supposed to be about facts? And what this author Trevor Hudson is saying is, what if memory serves a deeper purpose? What if memory allows us to see clearly what we could not see before? What if memory allows us to have a sense of who we are? And what if memory allows us to have a sense of whom we belong to? Right? To know the Creator. Think about this, all of you who are married people. There's always jokes about don't forget the anniversary, right? I made a brutal mistake. I remembered an anniversary, but I didn't get my wife a card, all right? Now, that's just, you know, the hiccups that you have in those first couple years, but Lana loves to receive a card. I have not forgotten since, all right? But the anniversary is kind of interesting because especially when it's your first year or even your second year, you're really not sure what to do, especially as a guy. You know it's important, and you're like, okay, it's got to be really amazing. So maybe you're going to take her out to a nice dinner, right? Or maybe you're going to do something really fun, maybe go on a trip. I loved the anniversaries that my parents had growing up because they didn't try to get rid of us kids. They probably couldn't afford to. You know, what they did is they gathered their family around the table. We had a candlelight dinner all together. And I remember it very clearly, and my brothers do too, because every now and then my dad would light something on fire. <laughs> he would, you know, reach across the table, the flowers catch on fire. No, literally, that's literally what happened. Anyway... But uh, what do you do with the, with the great anniversary? What makes a great anniversary? Is it the fancy dining? You know, is, what is it? It's the conversation. I'm convinced it's the conversation. This is why I think anniversaries, whether we're talking about married people's anniversaries or any anniversary that we're looking at, I think is the conversation is at the core. Because it's through the conversation that what do you do? You remember stories you share those, those first-year adjustments and difficulties. Some of them are kind of humorous, and some of them are a little bit irritating. But then at, you also perhaps discuss the pain of situations. You know, maybe there was a miscarriage. Certain fights. Difficulties with parents and in-laws. Maybe even infidelities. But then at the same time, you look at the joys of what you've overcome 
the fact that you're sitting across the table from someone who has not left your side, the joy and the victory of knowing, right, what God has done through you. And year after year, the more time that goes by, you have more dots to connect. Look what God did there. And if it hadn't been for God, where would we be today, right? <laughs> and, and those kinds of those dots that you connect. Anniversaries are amazing because what you're doing is you're having a conversation about what you value most, which is, as this author says, the mysterious journey. The Hebrews writer talks about it in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. He's talking about something in the future. The assurance of things hoped for and the assurance... Um, the conviction of things not seen. But then he, he says this, he says, for by it the men of old gained approval. And he goes through this huge list of all these Old Testament characters. Can I call God a character? Because he starts with God. Right? You know, God made this world and all that's in it. He talks about the faith of Abel. He talks about the faith of Enoch. Enoch is a guy who never even died. He didn't even have death talks about the faith of Noah who built an ark, the faith of Abraham who went to some land that he didn't even know where he was going. He just picked up his tents and he left because God told him, I'm going to take you to some place that's really special. And he trusted it. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, right? I'm going to have you lead the people out of Egypt. It's going to be horrible. He doesn't tell him that part, but it was, right? And Moses does it anyway. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets, martyrs, all of these things, it's, it's filled up in chapter 11 of Hebrews. It's all the stuff in the past. He's like, remember this, and remember that, and remember that, and remember that, and then what does he say in Hebrews 12, the very next chapter, in verse 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us, right now, in the present Strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How powerful is that? Look at what's been done. You seriously can't grapple with the idea that the race before you is going to be without the one who took care of all of them? It's like a cloud of witnesses here to testify to you. Reflect and remember on that. And then 1 Corinthians 11, another example, it's where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. What are his favorite words? This is my body which is given for you. Do what? Do this in remembrance of me. What we just did with the Lord's Supper, it's a time of reflection that takes us to the back. John 20. John 20 is really the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Then he sort of puts on an extra story in John 21. But still, at the end of John chapter 20, it says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here's all the stories. You believe those? Do you understand the life that you're about to have in his name? And Jesus, in way, he prays in John chapter 17, he says, I glorified you on the earth. This is Jesus praying to God. This is his final prayer. You want a glimpse of Jesus' heart? You want to know what he prayed on the mountains? This might give you at least some inkling of it. John chapter 17, the whole chapter is the prayer of Jesus. It's his last one before he's murdered on a cross. He says to the Lord, he says, God, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's reflection. There's something happening in the present and something happening in, in the future. But listen, I shared something with you at Easter. Really important. And when I shared it with you, I'm not sure if all of you grabbed hold of it, but I'm going to share it one more time simply because I feel like it's this important. This idea of reflection is something that should almost excavate your own soul. Because as we reflect on God's story, as we reflect on the stories around us, 
the family reunions, the anniversaries, and all the rest of it, there is another reflection where people do not usually want to go. And it's a reflection of your own death. Because it's painful. So what am I talking about? Here's what, I, well, here's what I'm talking about. Usually when we're talking about what does it mean for the people of God, for people, humanity, to eventually be reconciled with God the Father, there's this enormous chasm right here which is because of a broken world. It's because of sin. You know, we always blame Adam and Eve. Yeah, we're, we're much better than them, right? Listen, all have sinned. Sin has separated us from God. He's holy and pure. He cannot be in your presence. Let me reverse that. You cannot be in his presence, all right? It just won't, it can't happen. Sometimes I think we treat God like this bad guy, like, oh, well, you're really dirty. I don't want you to come into my house. You know, that's not it. It cannot exist. And so because of that, there's this chasm. And so what happens is this Jesus comes into this world. And through Jesus Christ, he lives a spotless, sinless life so that all the broken sin that's in my life and yours and everyone else throughout human history gets placed on him as a sacrifice. He is then offered up on a cross as a living sacrifice for our sins. So that's what happens on Friday. And there we are on Friday and we offer the sacrifice that's through Jesus Christ. And because of it, Isaiah 53 says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. But the Bible also tells us that right before he died, he cried out to God, Lama, Lama, or Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, thank you. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will also find that death is spoken of in Scripture, a kind of death that we have. And what happens is this. I think Christians like to build this little bridge that walks them across over to here through Jesus Christ. We don't like the idea of Saturday because Saturday is when he's in the grave. We usually skip from Friday to Sunday because we believe in the resurrection. But here's where that falls a little bit short. And I'm not trying to question the gospel. I, I think you're still looking at gospel truth when you're talking about this, this little dotted line, this little bridge that we're walking from here to over to here, right? But it robs you of something very important. You have died to sin. Romans 5.8 says these words, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead to sin. And the truth is this. Jesus died on the cross, but he was cut off from God. There's debate as to where he went. A lot of people think he went to hell. I personally believe that he visited the the, the realm of the dead, there are several verses that allude to that. You can listen to the podcast if you want. But we have to embrace our death. We have to understand that we ourselves have died. And that until we understand our death, we will never fully understand our resurrection. Because you see, it's through the power of Jesus who is there with us even in our death. He's there with us. That he will then, through his power, Bring us back to God. I don't think it's this sweet little bridge where we get to look down on all the nastiness that existed in our life. I think we have to allow sin to be something that we still reflect on. It remains in our memory for a reason. Are you, are you following me? It's there for a reason. And I hear, I hear well-meaning Christians, and I'm one of them, that have said, listen, your sin does not define you. Jesus Christ defines you, not your sin. Okay, that's true, right? But it's only partially true. Yes, Jesus Christ now defines us. But guess what? My sin, the things that I have done to other people, the things that I've done to my wife, the things, the harm that I brought to myself, and especially the harm that I brought to God, it's still lodged right here for a reason. And until I'm going to allow myself to come face to face with that, to look, the, look at that death in such a way 
that I'm brutally honest about it, only then can I, Jesus then show me what it means to be resurrected. That's where your life comes from. It comes from being dead. And too often we want to stay out of it. We don't want to talk about the trauma in our lives. We don't want to talk about the things that we've done. We don't want to talk about the broken relationships, the ways that we've been hurt and the way that we have hurt other people. But what would you do with that memory? I think we struggle with that all the time. We know that we've been forgiven, but there's still so much shame inside of us. Doesn't that tell you something? Maybe it's time for you to revisit that. Maybe it is time for you to go down into that pit and come face to face with that death to realize the power of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if that's true, then it ought to be reflected in our prayers. I believe that if you want powerful prayer, it's going to need to be, it's going to have to have reflection. That's my opinion. I'm not saying all your prayers are wrong if you're praying for your food, right? But I am saying this. I don't think we're in the habit of reflecting in our prayers. I think sometimes we treat God like he's this vending machine and we're just asking, oh Lord, please, can you please, you know, give me this and give me this. I do that all the time. I'm always desperate for something, right? I'm like, oh God, please, you know. But what if it was to include the past? What if it was to include the ways in which I have been saved out of that pit? What will then my prayer become? We use our memories to bring us back out of the death. And we do it in such a way that our prayers become powerful. John 14 says this, Jesus, he said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom, fa- whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Do you hear that? The Holy Spirit will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit is working inside of you. He's bringing the memory of God's story face-to-face with you in your life. And it's powerful if you open up your heart and open up your mouth and pray to God. Beckon it. Allow it to come in. Allow it to, to saturate who you are. John would later write, we love because he first loved us. I just want to close with a, a quick story. Um, I had a very interesting, defining moment recently. My family went on a, a trip, as many of you know. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> it's like this giant mass, you know, of, of people because the Bartain clan is just huge. And people are like, is that your whole family? I'm like, yeah, that's only 60% because <laughs> Joel and Seth couldn't make it. So anyway, uh, we had this big family uh, road trip all the way down to Texas, and we were going to visit our grandparents, right? Because... Uh, most of them are still alive. And it may be that this might be the final time when our children, you know, are going to be able to come face to face with their great grandparents. It might not. Partains live forever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, but it was interesting because we get to this spot and the agenda is simply this. On Sunday, we're going to go to my grandpa's church. Now, my grandpa is a third generation Partain preacher. Okay? So I'm a fifth. All right. So he's a third-generation part-time preacher. His church is a Spanish-speaking church. And so we're like, um, how are we going to translate? Well, Miles has been taking Spanish, so I, I wanted to sit next to him. I couldn't. But anyway, we get into the church building, and it is packed. It's a small building. I think there may have been close to 200 people. It's hard to say. But, I mean, it was wall-to-wall, just packed. And my grandpa wasn't exactly the speaker at that particular, on that particular Sunday, but we got to just sort of watch and listen and kind of know what's going on and that type of thing. And I was just, something was welling up inside of me, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And afterwards, everyone's leaving from the church. Well, I happened to find a seat at the back door. So as they're coming, everyone's shaking my hand. You know, I was like, I got to move, you know, because it's like all these people. And it was just fantastic. I mean, everyone's very warm, receptive. And at the end, a guy, um, 
one of the men, I think he's a deacon, he came up to me and he said, hey, do you want to see your grandpa's work? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I just, here, let me, let me show you. And so he takes me and we go up to the front of the building and there's this little door. We go into the door and the room, I mean, it was so small. I mean, it was, it was probably about the size of, of this right here, maybe a little bit larger than that, but the walls were lined with shelves all the way up to the ceiling. And on all the shelves, there were these stacks of papers. And what he did is he showed me, your grandpa today is still writing material that gets sent around the globe. They're like correspondence courses. Now let me pause for a second. I don't agree with my grandpa theologically. There are several points that we would find strong disagreement on, and I think it was evident because he never really asked me about the work that I've been trying to do in Missoula, okay? So there may be some friction there, but it didn't matter. He's preaching Jesus Christ. I think there's a little bit of legalism in there, but I don't care. He's preaching Jesus Christ, and he's sending these things out all over the place, South America, all the way over to Russia. There's this great story that people were telling me about where there was a guy, and I, I think he was in, oh, I can't remember if it was Columbia or somewhere, um, South America. He was walking along, and he found a piece of litter, and it happened to be one of the tracks that my grandpa had made. He picked it up, and this is what they love to say. He picked up that track, and a church started there. I heard that story like three times because the man was so convicted by what he read that he shared it with others. Gradually a group grew into something more and they invited Grandpa over to speak at a church that really he had already started. And I'm looking at all the shelves around there and I'm just blown away and they explained to me we pack these every single day. We are in here packing envelopes and we're sending them out and the addresses were hilarious. Some of them were pretty normal, and then you look at others, and it says, take to the old tree, turn right at the red post, and put it under the flower pot. That's literally written on the envelope, right? I mean, that, that's the kind of outreach that he has. And so I just stood there in awe, and I took a bunch of pictures, and I was just like, what a legacy. And later we went over to their house, we had dinner, and then what they wanted to do was they wanted to sing. We're like, that's fine. We're Church of Christ Jews. We acapella all the time. So uh, they sat down, and my grandpa stood next to his wife, um, my grandma. And uh, they stood right there, and they asked for certain songs to be sung. It was hilarious. Didn't know any of them, except for Amazing Grace. But we all had songbooks, and we would sing in the best four-part harmony that we could. And it was in that moment that uh, I just was, I was just so rocked by the man before me. And so thankful that I come out of such a strong heritage of what it means to take the gospel to the people. And at the same time convicted, because the questions that stirred up within me was, will I have this kind of impact? Like, what is, what is God's plans? Like, how does this affect who I am today? And how will I move moving forward from here? And it is profound for me personally because I don't think I even come close to the type of person that my grandpa is. I can't even believe that we were given this blessing where I had I was able to finally come face to face with him because we hardly ever see each other and I got to see the extent of his work and looking at all that he has done and the history of who he is and then the son that he had, my father, and the work that he did, and now here I am, fifth generation, and what will God do from here? And there's a part of me that's a little bit convicting, like, man, you better get it in gear if you're gonna keep up to that, right? And then there's a part that's really exciting. What will God do? Let's go. Let's do it. And so I come back from this trip, and I go up to my office, and I am ready to roll. I'm like, all right. Let's do this. And it's my encouragement to you. Let's do this. Let's go forward. Let's have powerful impact in this world. And my prayers have to have that reflection in them as well. I'm constantly asking God to provide because I've already seen how he's provided in the past. What's your defining moments? Seriously, think about it. What has defined who you are? your sin, but also your victories. What are those moments? 
Allow those moments to percolate down into the prayers that you give to God. And then let's see what the Holy Spirit will do. Gracious God, I thank you so much. I thank you for the fact that you have provided in so many ways. I'm I'm still amazed that this church even exists. I thank you that the people that we have in this room have been so firmly rooted, not only in their commitment, but in their walk and their journey with you. Lord, Satan has had a field day with the people here. I feel as though we're constantly being attacked, pushed around, bullied, whatever it might be, in our own individual ways. Lord, I ask that the family of God may come together and and reflect not only on the pain that we have that's deep inside of our hearts, but also reflect on where we've come from. And perhaps even another level deeper, Lord, that we would reflect on what you have provided to your people. Allow us to open up to a place like Hebrews 11 and to read through this list of names where you have shown what you can do with your people. And then, Lord, allow us to have that level of faith. Great God, I ask that your spirit move. Even now, even now, Lord, I ask that your spirit move. There are people here who are hurting. There are people here right now, Lord, that are lost, that are feeling that darkness. Help them to see that even then there is an opportunity. An opportunity for them to come face to face with a Savior who is willing to die for us and to remain in death with us and to then resurrect and bring us back to you. May we experience that. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've given, most of all for Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for Friday and Saturday and especially for Sunday. Be with us, God. Keep us safe. It's in Jesus' name we pray.